The Midday Report. I'm Mandy Wiener. Keep listening as we round up the key stories affecting your world with interviews with newsmakers, in-depth analysis and eyewitness news reporters on the ground. The Midday Report. The former Tswani mayor, Murunwa Makwarela, Two weeks ago, he was the mayor of the capital city in the country. Today, he's appeared in the dock. He has voluntarily surrendered himself to the police in the early hours of this morning. And this is all to do with the certificate, which now, and it seemed at the time, was fraudulent. Uh, so he was processed at the Brooklyn police station in Tswane. He then appeared in court today. Remember, this is because of the insolvency rehabilitation certificate. He needed to submit it to the city to stay on as the mayor of Tswane. And evidently, it was fraudulent. Khamotu Modise, EWN reporter in court for us. Khamotu, good afternoon to you. Thanks for your time today. Tell us about the court appearance today by Murunwa Makurela. Khamotu, are you with us? Hello, can you hear me? There we go. We can hear you loud and clear. What happened in court today? Well, Mandy, the, we saw Dr. Murunga Makwarela in the dock today. He was appearing on two charges of fraud. The first is in relation to the amount of money that he's earned from the time that he was appointed councillor in November 2021 to March. Um, so that's last month, uh, essentially. And so um, the, the state is looking to recover that amount of money that he was paid because he failed to disclose to the IEC his insolvency. And so as a result, the state believes that he should pay back that money. Of course, he's also spoken before saying he is willing to pay back that money in his controversial tweet where he said that you know, he was uh, pushed and coerced to make um, these mistakes that he makes and he made by the ANC. The particularly Kosmaeba from the ANC in Twani. And so that's the first charge. The second charge um, is relating to something called uttering, which is really similar to forgery, in that he submitted that dodgy um, certificate, uh, appearance certificate, where he claimed that he had been, um, uh, you know, uh, rehabilitated uh, as an insolvent, and he he submitted that, that, that certificate, and it was found, of course, by uh, the North Houting High Court that it wasn't, um, it hadn't come from the court at all. And so he's facing those two charges. These are Schedule 5 offenses, and so they have been treated very seriously by the court. And that's why bail has been set at 10,000 rand. 10,000 rand bail for Marunwa Makorela. Did he speak at all to journalists? Uh, is he maintaining his innocence on this, or what's he been saying? Yes, yeah, so firstly, before the matter was actually heard, Mandy, we saw Makwarela um, actually trying to get the media not to be in court. Um, you know, we heard his lawyers actually arguing um, that, you know, this is a private matter and, sh- and so it should not be aired publicly. But of course, you know, we understand issues around the public interest. Makwarela was a public servant here in Tuane, um, having served as a counselor. And he was a chairperson of COPE. He is a public figure. And so the court wasn't buying that. We saw um, uh, Magistrate Sitokwe ruling that uh, the broadcast and recording of sound and pictures and videos should be taken in court. And then when we spoke to him while he was in the dark, he said to me that he's feeling blessed and highly favored. He said he's blessed going in, blessed coming out, and he's got nothing else to say. And when I asked, you know, um, he spoke about how um, any temptation that befalls before him he, you know, does not worry or fret. And I asked, were you tempted to forge that document? And he said to me, I'm quoting a scripture and that's all I'm going to say. So 
Um, Aquarela have been granted a 10,000 rand bail, which uh, is being processed in the court as we speak. Blessed and highly favoured. Khamotsu Morise, EWN reporter, thank you for that. So Dr. Murunwa Makwarela appearing in court for fraud today. What a fall from grace. And the fact that he thinks the media is not going to come in, that it's a private matter. He was the mayor of Tuane two weeks ago. So, of course, there's public interest. If you want to be a public officer and you want to be held accountable by the people, then the people will hold you accountable. The Midday Report. John Steenhuizen being re-elected as the Democratic Alliance's federal leader at the party's Congress at the weekend. He gave an acceptance speech yesterday. He did, of course, beat uh, the former Joburg mayor, Dr. Mpo Palate, in that battle for the leadership position. Uh, Steenhuizen saying in that acceptance speech that he's urging the DA supporters to ensure the party gets a decisive victory in the 2024 elections. Also speaking about the EFF and its leader, Julius Malema, naming them as enemy number one. Earlier today, Dr. Mpopolati was on Clement Magnatella's show uh, with Africa Milani standing in for Clement. Have a brief listen to what she said. The optics may not necessarily speak to the majority of South Africans. I know a few of the people in our leadership structures that I have faith in. I have great faith in J.P. Smith. For instance, he is a Caucasian male, but I've worked closely with him from my time as an MNC during my time as mayor. And I believe in his leadership. And I also know that he gets it. He understands the need for a transformation agenda within the Democratic Alliance. And he understands our need to appeal to all South Africans. So I, I would love to really just appeal to South Africans to give the Democratic Alliance a chance, even with the leadership that we have, and to understand that we, we, we don't run the party according to racial quotas. Individuals put their hands up. And, and if we had enough um, black females, for an example, putting their hands up, perhaps we would have had a different outcome. Dr. Mpopalazzi on Clement Maniotella's show a bit earlier on today. Well, great pleasure now to welcome John Steenhuizen, the re-elected Democratic uh, Alliance leader, to the Midday Report. John, good afternoon to you. Thank you very much for your time. Firstly, congratulations. A lot of positives to draw for the DA. For you personally, your election as leader was convincing. Uh, according to reports, of course, the numbers very much in your favor. But also, the conference was run sickly on time, crucially, and the party itself appears unified, at least. Well, good afternoon, Mandy. Great to be with you and the listeners. Yes, I think that what we showed South Africa is that we're a modern party that is determined to build a better future for the country. And I think that was reflected in the resolutions. I think it was reflected in many of the debates that were had. Um, And I think the very mature way in which our leadership contestation took place across the board, there was no throwing of chairs, it was all done in a very clear, transparent, open and democratic way. And other was a great launch pad for the party's 2024 uh, election campaign. So, yeah, all in all, a good weekend. Mpo Palazzi saying to Africa Melania, but earlier on on this radio station, that her voter proposition was growth. Uh, the, AN, the, the DA has to, has to grow. But we do have a major voter apathy problem in South Africa. Do you believe, John, that you are the right person to get South Africans out to polling stations next year to make their ex next to the DA's name? Do you think you've got that, that appeal factor? Well, I certainly wouldn't have put my name up if I didn't believe that I could do so. And I directly spoke yesterday in the speech to those South Africans and have made the point to them very clearly that the fate is now in their hands and that uh, the, the country's future now depends on them getting involved, making sure that they vote, and particularly to those South Africans who aren't registered, to make sure they go to the IEC's website and get registered. I think what South Africans are looking for in a bleak political environment is hope. And I think that the moonshot pact 
is South Africa's best hope of being able to defeat the ANC and keep the EFF out of the union buildings. Uh, you, you mentioned the Moonshot Pact. You spoke about that yesterday. We're already seeing some reaction from other political parties that they don't necessarily seem too keen on that. Uh, the Freedom Front Plus saying that they, they weren't too keen. Actually, it says Michael Beaumont tweeting that, uh, make no mistake, the DA is joining something that others have started. Um, is this the kind of reaction you expected from other political parties? No, it's not. And I don't think it's what voters want either. I think voters want to see political parties ending the squabbling, leaving the egos at the door and sitting around a table and working maturely and constructively to achieve something. I think it is also important to say that we must be realistic. The DA is by far the largest opposition party in the country. Uh, It is also by far the largest political party in all of the provinces. I think that what we need to ensure is that there is no game in town. There's no way to build a post-ANC future that doesn't have the DA at the heart of it. So I'm really encouraging those leaders of political parties to come to the table in a very broad, generous and open way and let us discuss whether we can put together a pact that will go to the voters and show them that this is South Africa's best shot at redemption. Party leaders don't want to attend or don't want to be part of the process. That's fine. But they must then explain to their voters while they're walking out on the very best shot South Africa has of getting off this terrible trajectory and building a future of hope. After your comments uh, yesterday where you spoke about uh, uh, how how terrifying an EFF and an ANC coalition could be, uh, this idea that there could be a centrist coalition post-2024, so the DA and the ANC going into into a potential coalition together, that now seems unlikely. Well, Mandy, I was very clear yesterday that our first prize is to put together a coalition of like-minded opposition parties, of civil society bodies, of civic movements and building an ecosystem of change that will get us over the 51% mark. That is the first prize. But I was also equally clear that should that not succeed, that the DA would then do everything in our power to ensure that the keys of the union building were not handed to the EFF. And so we may find ourselves, if the moonshot pact does not work, and I'm very hopeful that it will, and I'm very optimistic that it will, but in the case that it doesn't work, we will do what we have to do to keep the EFF out of power. Even if it means going into a coalition with the ANC? It means doing whatever we need to do to keep the EFF out of the union buildings. All options are on the table, and we will look at every one of those. It may well be us having to find the least worst option, but I want to ensure that South Africans are protected from the disastrous policy platforms of the EFF and their politics of disorder, violence and chaos. John, going forward, now that you've been re- uh, re-elected for, for another term, there is still this prevailing narrative, and you may disagree. Um, some would argue that it's been entrenched by the leadership election results this weekend, that the DA primarily appeals to white South Africans and to minorities, pointing to the fact that, again, the majority of those in leadership positions elected this weekend are white and are male. How do you dissuade or uh, disabuse South Africans uh, of, of that notion when you look at the, the leadership ballot and who was elected, and it is majority white and male? Well, I'll certainly start by saying that the DA's appeal is not to white voters. 32% of our electoral base, and this is not our figures, it's the uh, in-depth study that was done on party political support by the Social Research Foundation. 32% of our supporters are black, 30% of them are coloured, 
37% Indian and 30% white. So we already have by far the most diverse voter base, and that is why we're the largest party in urban areas. Secondly, we don't elect people on quotas or on race. We elect people on merit. The Congress was overwhelmingly made up of delegates who were not white vote, white delegates, and they chose their leadership. I also find this argument that because you're a white person, you can't appeal to black voters, uh, frankly, quite fanciful. And I would advance that nobody suggested to Barack Obama that because he was a minority in America, he couldn't stand to be president. And nobody's calling out Richard Sunak, who is Asian and accounts for 7% of the British population, that he can't be the prime minister. I think we need to move past using the racial abacus uh, in everything we do and start judging people on what they can do and what they, they can achieve. I look at the work of someone like Chris Pappas in Ungeni Municipality in KwaZulu-Natal. He is a young white male, but he is doing everything he can to ensure delivery, particularly to the people of Mpopomeni in his municipality who have been deprived of services and advancement after 20 years under the ANC. I don't think that colour should be the determinant of whether somebody succeeds or not, or whether they are able to do a particular job. John, thank you very much. John Stienhausen, leader of the Democratic Alliance, speaking to us there the day after his re-election as leader of the Democratic Alliance, speaking about the moonshot pact. We've already seen reactions from other political parties as well who don't seem too keen. And then a lot of the reaction, as I said to John, that I've seen has been around the fact that uh, the DA primarily appeals to white South Africans, to minorities. And if you look at the leadership of those who were elected, majority are white and male. Does that mean that the DA is sufficiently transformed? John answering to that. The Midday Report. The ANC is now dealing with this letter that was sent by the former president, Thabo Mbeki, to the deputy president, Paul Mashatila. We spoke about that last week, in which he is furious, he expresses disdain, he is scathing of the way that the party has handled the Palapala farm saga, saying that President Sora Ramaphosa has been protected. So the ANC are meeting to discuss this. Nomvula Mokanyane is saying to the media that the letter wasn't meant to be in the public domain. The governing party is going to look at finding a resolution with former President Thabo Mbeki. Sandile Swana, political analyst, joining us now to speak about this. Sandile, good afternoon to you. Thanks for your time. Uh, so I, of course, when I saw this letter, was thinking, hmm, was this deliberately leaked? Did they really want it to be in the public domain? Did they not want it to be in the public domain? Who benefits here? Because uh, certainly there's a segment of the ANC that does benefit from this letter being in the public domain. Yes, uh, yes, indeed, we have to also be polite and, uh, and, and say we agree that um, confidential letters that are private should be kept there, but it is not our fault that this one is found it in front of us. Uh, the letter, there are several factions within the ANC. Uh, if the letter is in the public domain, uh, it means that Mbalula and whoever else, the political bodyguards of Cyril Ramaphosa, cannot simply keep quiet and not answer the letter. There are comments by the president that have been ignored. For instance, in 2019, the president pointed out before the 2019 election that there is no economic plan for South Africa. He has not been answered until today. Um, so there are a few things that I can quote that he has not been answered. And so there would have been people who would see this 
and say, maybe just put it in the public domain and see what comes out of it. How do you expect the ANT to respond now? Because we do have uh, the fact that the leadership is meeting. They are going to be talking about this. Do they come out and respond publicly or do they privately go and take a, a visit to Kilani? The basic line of march that I think Gwede Mandashe and Figilem Balula are going to point to the organization and to the president, former president Tabombegi, is that the organization has got a process and a method of dealing with this, which involves collating information from eight uh, investigating agencies that are investigating the president, and then coming into a determination after So if they do make a statement in the public domain, they are going to emphasize the past that they have taken, that yes, it takes time, it is frustrating, but it's a credible process that they need to follow. Uh, They will not be able, of course, to answer the fact that the Constitutional Court has already told Parliament before that they never have to wait for anybody to go ahead with their own parliamentary inquiries because their duties of oversight cannot be overcome or overwhelmed by any other, overtaken by any other investigation, by any other agent or agency out there. Sandile, thank you very much. Sandile Swana, political analyst there, giving us uh, some insights into the letter sent by former President Thabo Mbeki, highly critical of the ANC for its handling of Palapala, also of ESCOM, other matters as well. The Midday Report. Hi, uh, Mandy, uh, Nomini and Pretoria. I think the appearance of uh, the former mayor or the so-called uh, spin doctoring and Dr. Maquarela to appear in court, I think is a step in the right directions. That uh, those uh, MMCs, those MECs and those ministers and deputy ministers, they must scrutinize their qualifications so that uh, even in those departments, uh, the HODs, uh, the divisional managers, the DDGs, and the DGs, they must scrutinize them because I think this case will set a, a correct precedence in the public uh, or civil servants. Thank you. John Sternhazen is living in Cloud Cuckoo Land. Sorry, this is not the US and this is not the UK either. People do vote on racial lines still. We have our own peculiar history and that's that. And he's fooling himself when he thinks that the vast majority of black people will vote for him, as good or bad as they are. Leonard and Hermanus. Thank you for those WhatsApp voice notes responding to John Steenhazen and the interview he did uh, with me uh, in the middle half of the first half of this show. Uh, more WhatsApps uh, coming in to respond to that. And also the fact that the former Twani Mayor Mrunwa Makwarela appearing in court today. Two weeks ago, he was the mayor. Today, he is uh, charged. He is out on bail of 10,000 Rand. He also says that he is blessed and highly favoured. The Midday Report. So National Treasury says it's going to be issuing an explanation behind its decision to exempt ESCOM from declaring irregular and fruitless spending in its accounts. Uh, on Friday, the Finance Minister, Enoch Gorongwana, issued a government gazette exempting the power utility from disclosing irregular and fruitless expenditure in its annual financial statements. And you can imagine the backlash that there has been to this because it certainly looks like uh, this is a cover-up for ESCOM. They're, they're shielding ESCOM from accountability. 
Ndaizo Netonje, EWN senior reporter, joining us uh, in studio. So firstly, Ndaizo, welcome back to EWN <laughs> because we worked together as reporters a very long time ago. So yeah. it's lovely to have you back. No, it's good to be back. Um, I mean, it's been a long time, 15 years, I think. Yeah. Hey, you're making me sound sound old. Hey? <laughs> we are old. It's good to have you back in, yeah, in the building back, again, yeah. Ndaizo. So obviously there's huge backlash to this mm. decision. The finance minister, Iro Konongwana, issuing this uh, government Gazette exempting the power utility from disclosing irregular and fruitless expenditure. What are political parties saying? Well, uh, you've got the EFF and uh, Action SA uh, coming out also to a certain extent, uh, the DA through Alan Windy, the Western Cape uh, Premier, coming out and saying this opens doors for rampant corruption at ESCOM. I mean, if you're not going to be accountable on what happened to some of the monies within the state utility, then it becomes a huge problem. And uh, this exemption, Mandy, by the way, is for the 2023 financial, 2022-23 financial year, which is the one that we're coming out of, and for the next two years. So for mm. at least three years, ESCOM will be exempted from uh, this accountability. And uh, um, Action SA particularly says they are going to be seeking legal action. EFF, on the other hand, hand is legal advice. EFF, on the other hand, says um, they want to approach Parliament via Scopa uh, and have Godongwana explain himself, but they will be seeking a judicial review on the decision, which I think makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and to find the EFF and the DA and Action SA on one page hmm. with the underlying word corruption and it, it 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 should tell you that this is a concerning matter. I think this certainly is going to end up uh, in court. So National Treasury is going to issue an explanation. We also expected the Finance Minister to be at an event today where um, the uh, Reserve, not the Reserve Bank, the SARS Commissioner Edward Kisfeter was releasing um, results. Uh, he's not there. He's he's sick. He has flu. Yeah, and uh, you, you know when you look at that important uh, event that is taking place and this uh, uh, gazette that is signed on Friday, I think uh, it's telling uh, as to what uh, the finance minister's priorities are. And the only assertion, by the way, uh, on this matter, Mendy, he says the exemption was based on technical accounting grounds viewed in the context of the national state of disaster. Mm. But uh, that one would only understand the national state of disaster to do away with the red tape in procuring energy and uh, uh, not with yeah. the technicalities around accountability and transparency. So I think you will need to come out at some point. One was hoping that today we would, you know, throw in a question there, that event uh, that was meant to be in attendance, but uh, unfortunately it's not going to be there. Mm. Ndaizo Netonje, EWN senior reporter, joining us to speak about that. We are waiting for uh, Treasury to issue a statement on that. But as I mentioned, SARS and National Treasury today releasing the preliminary revenue outcome for the 2023 financial year. Edward Kisfeter giving a, a speech there. We'll play some of that audio for you in a minute. But really, it it is impressive because it is the biggest ever revenue collection for the country. Just over two trillion rand collected for the 20. 2022 23 uh, financial year. Nokokanya Mtambo, EWN reporter, there for us. Nokokanya, good afternoon to you. What else has Edward Kisvita been saying? 
Good afternoon, Mandy. So, correctly, it is over 2 trillion rand in gross revenue that was collected over the 2022-2023 financial year. But when we then uh, consider the refunds that were paid back to taxpayers, that amount comes down to a net revenue of 1.69 trillion rand, which is still quite um, a, a huge chunk of money that the, that the revenue service is able to generate. A chunk of that, remember, Mandy, also goes back to uh, government and to the fiscal framework. And so he's quite chuffed with the amount of work that the Revenue Service has put in over that year. Uh, it falls slightly short, by a very small margin, Mandy, of the estimate that was initially uh, mentioned by the um, Finance Minister Inok Kotongwana during January's budget. But another uh, key issue to take away from this was, of course, the impact of load shedding that we see. Uh, we're quite familiar with that now. And he says that more than 3,000 hours were lost, were lost, at least in production time, during that financial year. And that obviously means that businesses aren't able to generate as much uh, revenue for themselves, and obviously the collection is being impacted. So load shedding really does uh, remain a, a very big issue. But again, one of the even bigger issues is compliance, Mandy, in terms of the tobacco industry and the illicit flows of money coming in and out of the country. And SAR says that they remain adamant that they are strengthening their uh, protocols in terms of making sure that those uh, illicit trades are, um, you know, that they double down on making sure that they stamp out illicit trades, Mandy. Nokukanya, thank you. Nokukanya Mtambo, EWN reporter. She was at that event today where the Commissioner Edward Kisveta was speaking at the release of the preliminary revenue outcomes for the 2023 financial, 2022-2023 financial year. Let's have a listen to what else Edward Kisveta had to say. I remain concerned, though, I have to share with you about the abuse and fraud, especially the attack on our VAT refund system. We are pleased that the 381 billion return into the hands of taxpayers is good for the economy. In fact, the refunds this year represent about 5% of GDP. It is further pleasing that of this refund, 130 billion and 35 billion has been returned into the hands of medium small business and small businesses as well as individual taxpayers. This is good when businesses and individuals remain cash-strapped. Our second mandate objective, which is trade facilitation, for the year under review, SARS Customs facilitated a total of over 7 million trade transactions amounting to 3.937 trillion rand. This represents an 18.4% increase from the prior year. Exports amounted to 2031 and imports to 1.06 trillion, resulting in a trade balance of 125.83 billion. SARS Commissioner Edward Kisvita today releasing those results. A, a, a bumper year for SARS, a record year. Uh, Two trillion rand collected by SARS in the 2022-23 tax year. The midday report. We've had an extraordinary amount of load shedding so far this year. Uh, But despite this, most South Africans do enjoy at least having some electricity. There are still communities which don't get any electricity at all. Around 10 to 12% of the country 
still doesn't have access to electricity. That's wild. Can you believe that? So Bernadette Wicks, EWN reporter, went to visit Umkhrabuya Lingana in northeastern KwaZulu-Natal. It holds the position of being South Africa's least electrified municipality. So she went there. She went to go speak to people about finding out what life without any power is like. Uh, We're going to play a special report from Bernadette. But firstly, we'll check in with her. Bernadette, good afternoon to you. Thanks for your time. This community, how did you find out uh, about their story and why did you choose to tell it? Shedding, it, it strips hours of electricity from the grid for, for most South Africans at least on quite a regular basis and we find it so frustrating and I really just on a personal level um, I know that, that at those times it's incredibly disruptive and I often but something I often find myself thinking about really is that there are still people in this country who have no electricity and thinking about how difficult it is just to lose a couple of hours compared to what that might be like. So um, I really just had a look at the, at the uh, latest community survey results um, and that's obviously what's conducted midway between censuses to get an idea of, of what electricity provision looks like around the country. Um, and I found this municipality, and when I saw the figures, um, I just it, it, it really just resonated with me. So we went down there, and we, as you mentioned, we spoke to people, and we spent some time in the community. Um, and this is, this is the report that I filed. There's still a blanket of darkness draped over the rural village of Mpini in Umtlubuolangana when the Mbonambi family first wakes. They start the day with a fire. They walk for several kilometers to gather the kindling from deep within the felt. Londi Mbonambi sits beside the flames. She stokes the tinder until it breaks apart, and then she scoops up the embers and places them inside an old-fashioned coal iron, which she'll use to iron out her younger cousin's uniforms before they head out on the hour-long walk to school. In the meantime, one of her cousins, Ntetelelo Mbonambi, fetches a bucket of water from the Jojo tank on the homestead, guided through the thick grass by the glow of a small torch. The water is poured into a time-weathered pot, which is placed on the fire, to slowly come to a boil. These two basic tasks, ironing three school shirts and boiling a few cups of water, take close to an hour without electricity. The municipality of Umpluboelangana is the least electrified in South Africa. The data on exactly how many people have access isn't clear. The 2016 community survey showed 77% of the then 172,000 strong population didn't have access to electricity. And by 2020-2021, 32,000 households with an average of five people each were still without. But Mayor Tembankosi Kamalo says there's overall electrification of around 75% now. This would have required an extraordinary amount of work in a very short amount of time relative to the history of the issue. Even then, though, that leaves some 44,000 of the now 177,000 people living here without access. Electricity, or a lack thereof, impacts on education, health, water supply, work opportunities, trade and industry, connectivity, and other state-provided services. And one of the key objectives of the National Development Plan is to provide universal access to electricity by 2030. Impini starts where the power lines end. Over and above electricity, many don't have flushing toilets, refuse disposal services, or even running water. The Mbonambi family's Jojo tank is full at the moment, thanks to the recent rain. During dry periods, they walk for several kilometers to dig for groundwater. The road here, and to the villages still beyond, is nothing more than a sandy pathway cut through the felt. 
There are no signs to show the way or even mark the entrance. 43-year-old traditional healer Pandile Umbonambi is the only breadwinner in the home. We need water urgently and electricity. Also roads, when we have to go to town, we usually struggling. There is one car that goes to town at 8 a.m. every day. If you miss that, that car, you are not going anyway, even if you have an emergency. We need water because we have washing to do. We need to cook and as a traditional healer, I need to make the medicine my clients need. She wants to leave, but she can't afford it. And so she's trapped. I just don't have the finance to move. I can't even build here. I do think of moving but it is pointless having those thoughts when i have nothing electrification has massive socio-economic benefits especially for women and children who still shoulder the majority of the housework in most homes tandile chinyavanu is a climate and energy campaigner for greenpeace africa it reduces the amount of labor that's necessary for women and children to be able to complete their tasks in a more efficient manner. So one of the areas in which you would see this is women and children would not necessarily have to collect biofuels like wood as they usually would. So that would reduce the time consumption that they, they dedicate to certain activities. As a result, they're able to spend more time on education and compensated work, for example. This is how you break the cycle of poverty. As Chinyavanu says, though, without access to electricity, this is incredibly challenging. Bernadette Wicks, Eyewitness News. And thank you to Bernadette Wicks for that special report from Umklabuya Lingana in northeastern KwaZulu-Natal, a reality check for, for many of us, South Africa's least electrified municipality. That's what life is like without any power at all. The Midday Report. Now let's check in with the impeachment inquiry into the fitness of the public protector, Busisiwe Mkwebane, to hold office. Last week it was a pretty spectacular because advocate Dalian Porfu SC said that, well, his mandate is up and they won't be seeing him anymore because uh, there was an announcement by the Office of the Public Protector that it doesn't have funds to pay for her legal fees beyond the end of March. But Advocate Dalian Porfu was back again today in a sort of non-lawyer capacity um, because we'll find out why in a second. But the UDM leader, Bantu Holomista, is saying today that he suggests that the inquiry be postponed and the Public Protector be allowed to go and do her work for now. This is what Bantu Holomista had to say. I think, uh, I think, uh, you may have to consider postponing this hearing today until uh, you have full, until the, the public protector and the parliament, or rather active public protector and parliament, have possibly found a, a solution to this problem. Because we have a constitutional court decision which says the public protector must have a legal representative. So I would suggest that uh, you postpone this and then you iron out these uh, uh, problems which have just uh, cropped up 
But then at the same time, we know that we are dealing here with a situation where another court found that the public protector was wrongly suspended. How I wish she can go and, 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 and work, go back and work, I should continue to do this hearing or conduct this hearing. Thank you. Pantu Holomisa speaking there. EWN reporter Babalo and Denze watching that for us. Babalo, good afternoon to you. So where are we now? What was Advocate Dalian Pofu doing there today? And does the suspended public protect- protector have lawyers? Ah, yes, indeed, Mandy. Um, well, the public protector basically said that the only reason Advocate Dalimbofo was present, you know, was just to basically just listen in and of, on what was being said as far as the procedure is concerned at the beginning of the of the of the meeting. But he's not part of the proceedings. He's pulled out, as Mkwemani has repeatedly told the committee. And she also says, you know, I'm proceeding. The committee has now decided to proceed, and it's currently, you know, listening to Advocate Bauer just taking members through the evidence that's already been put to the committee, that's, you know, already evidence that's with, that's been dealt with, and that's really related to Mosasa CR-17. Um, but the proceeding, despite Nkwebana's protestation, where she's saying that they're violating the rights, um, evidence leaders can't proceed without legal representation because Advocate Mbofu is not part of these proceedings. He's pulled out because of that funding issue. And she says, you know, she'll also be lodging a complaint to the Legal Practice Council on Advocate Nazreen Bauer you know, for agreeing with the chairperson and the committee, you know, to continue with the process, saying she should know better as a as a legal practitioner that this is an unfair process, Mandy. Babalo, thank you. Babalo and Denze, EWN reporter, giving us an update there on uh, the inquiry, the public protector's inquiry into her fitness to hold office. The Midday Report. So as harrowing as that story about uh, Benedict um, Wicks is, her ability to tell a story and immerse you into that world is just insane. She's incredible. She's absolutely incredible. I could have listened for another hour. Kudos, kudos indeed. Bernadette Wicks uh, telling us that story of the Umbuklabu Yalingana municipality in northeastern KwaZulu-Natal, taking us there, inserting us very much into the lives of those people who live every day without any power at all. That is the power of, of journalism. That is the responsibility of journalism as well. And that was an incredible package. The Midday Report. So I do want to take a moment right now on the Madeira Report to remember a, a colleague, Jeremy Gordon, and reports breaking at the weekend that Jeremy was killed at his Parkview home on Friday during a home invasion. Police are saying that they are investigating a case of robbery and murder. When I started as a young reporter covering Zuma court cases and ANC conferences in Peter Maritzburg and Polokwane, Jeremy was one of the most generous of the old hacks. He, he really was. And during his time, he was a hard news writer. He was a poet. He wrote a book on Jacob Zuma. Many of you may have read it. He wrote two other books too. Jeremy was also the editor of the Daily Sun. He was the co-editor of the Sunday Independent. He also for a time headed the Wits Justice Project as well. And, and he was very much a feature on the journalism landscape in South Africa. He was gruff, but he was kind. He was quick-witted. But he was acerbic as well. His writing was cutting. It was hilarious. Jeremy was irreverent. He called it like it was. He was 
old school journalism. So today I just want to take a moment to remember the contribution that Jeremy made as a journalist to South Africa. Journalism in South Africa is poorer without you, Jeremy Gordon, but also to remember the person that he was and to his family and to his friends and to his colleagues as well. You are in our thoughts and we wish you long life. The Midday Report. Mandy, I have to agree with John Stenhouse's fear of uh, Julius Malema and the EFF coming into power in the union buildings uh, because uh, the EFF is destructive. Uh, look at who they look up to. They look up to ZANU-PF in Zimbabwe, uh, the repressive North Korean government and uh, Venezuela. I mean, uh, who wants such a party to take control? They will de- completely destroy South Africa. It will become another Zimbabwe. Thanks, Farai. Thanks, Farai, for that WhatsApp voice note. And that's what John Steenhazen uh, effectively was saying in that interview that he did with me earlier on the show, also during his acceptance speech yesterday, where he spoke about the fact that they will do anything to keep the EFF out of power. And he has spoken about how deeply concerning and how terrifying it is if there is going to be an ANC-EFF coalition. And when I asked John Steenhazen, well, does that mean that an ANC-DA, a centrist coalition, is... Off the table, he said, we'll do whatever it takes to keep the EFF out of power. Not explicitly saying that uh, it means that uh, there could be an ANC-DA coalition, but they'll do whatever it takes. So um, lots of voice notes responding to that. The fact that the DA very much focused on keeping the EFF out of power. Hi, Mindy. Good news that uh, SARS have generated such revenue. However, Mindy, I feel like you can call Mr. Kizweta to come and answer our questions because man you know what i think after he started ssr's commissioner he announced that people earning less than five hundred thousand per year they shouldn't bother to submit tax i'm one of those and then all of the sudden starts come back saying that we i owe and i think i know several people just because they didn't submit now people are getting penalties thousand rands of penalties why is that? He must come and explain to us. Uh, good day, Mandy. This is Brian from Pretoria. I find uh, John, the leader of uh, DA's um, reference or example of race politics to using uh, Barack Obama as an example, that is so, so misplaced. Thank you. Thanks very much for all of those WhatsApp voice notes coming in, responding to that interview with John Steenhazen and his comments in response to the question, is he the right person to deal with voter apathy in South Africa to get people to the polls? Does the DA represent uh, all South Africans? Uh, and is he going to be the person who's going to lead the Democratic Alliance into a moonshot pact, as he describes, and the reaction from other opposition parties as well? The Midday Report. That's a wrap of the day's news. Don't forget you can catch the full Midday Report live on 702 and Cape Talk via our streams on YouTube and our website 702.co.za and capetalk.co.za. Keep checking in for updates from my colleagues at Eyewitness News. Till the next time, I'm Mandy Wiener. The Midday Report.